lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. On today's episode, we will be discussing anti-Semitism within British politics, particularly on the British left. I'm joined by Dave Rich. Dave works for the CST, the Community Security Trust, which is a charity that protects British Jews from anti-Semitism and related threats. He is also the author of the book, The Left's Jewish Problem, Jeremy Corbyn, Israel and Anti-Semitism. Just a quick one before we start. If you like the work that I'm doing, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. Your subscription goes towards supporting the upkeep of this podcast. If you don't wish to become a subscriber, that's absolutely fine. If you like what I'm doing, please share this podcast to your friends, family and anybody who might be interested. Please leave a review on iTunes. The more reviews we get, the higher we rank on the uh, iTunes network and we uh, and we will attract new listeners. I think the topics that we're discussing on this podcast uh, are interesting and to some extent quite important and it'd be great to get more people listening to this show. I'm hoping to grow the podcast this year and I'm also hoping to do talks in front of the live audience. So uh, hopefully uh, for anybody based in the UK, we will get a chance to meet each other this year. Um, And if that's successful, then I wouldn't rule out doing talks um, in other countries in the future, should anybody want me. But anyway, I won't ramble on, but uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I found Dave really interesting. This topic of anti-Semitism is sadly um, an ongoing issue, and it's a very important topic. And I think Dave helps us sort of get through certain terminology that keeps getting confused and conflated in this uh, in this ongoing debate around anti-Semitism on the British left. So um, I hope you find this podcast helpful and ultimately I hope you find it interesting. So thank you for joining me again on the Dry Cleaner Cast and we will now begin. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film The Dry Cleaner. Dave, welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast. Hi. For the benefit of listeners unfamiliar with you and your work, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I work as head of policy for a UK Jewish charity called the Community Security Trust, which uh, organises security across the Jewish community and supports victims of anti-Semitism. Can you just paint um, our listeners a picture of the types of threats that the Jewish community in the UK currently has to deal with? Well, at the most extreme end, as we saw uh, in Pittsburgh uh, a few weeks ago, there is a threat of terrorism from different types of extremists that uh, faces Jewish communities around the world. So in Pittsburgh, it was a a neo-Nazi terrorist who went into a synagogue and shot 11 uh, Jewish people dead uh, while they prayed. But we've also seen in different parts of Europe in recent years, terrorist attacks from uh, jihadists aligned with ISIS or with Al-Qaeda that have uh, targeted Jewish communities in France, Mm. in Denmark, uh, in Brussels. And there have been plots. Uh, thankfully, 
foiled plots in this country that have involved the targeting of Jewish communities as well. So that's the most extreme end of the threats. But there's also the daily grind of anti-Semitic incidents, hate crimes, whether that's verbal abuse, graffiti, uh, occasionally uh, assaults, but thankfully rarely serious ones that affect Jewish people, Jewish organisations, Jewish buildings all over the UK. Yeah, and has that increased in the last sort of few years, or is it sort of a, is it there is an even sort of flow to it? It has increased. So at CST, we've been recording anti-Semitic incidents for over thirty years, and in the last couple of years, the sort of daily or, or monthly totals of incidents we've been recording has roughly doubled what it was four or five years ago. So you go back to 2012, 2013, we were getting maybe 40 or 50 incidents a month. Uh, For the last two years, it's been over 100 incidents pretty much every month for the last couple of years with with one or two exceptions. Yeah. And are there... I don't know. I mean, are there any particular things that is causing this increase or is it a number of things? It's a number of different things. In the past, when we've had a year where there's been a big increase in the number of incidents, it's tended to be a year where there's a single event, what we call a trigger event, that causes a big spike. Mm. Uh, And that is usually the, the biggest spikes come when Israel has a war. So in 2014 or 2009, the last time there were big conflicts in Gaza, we got record totals of anti-Semitic incidents. And the incidents mostly or largely happened during that period of that conflict overseas. Yeah. And, then, and then they receded when that had finished. The last two years, there's been no single trigger event of that nature, whether it's a war in Israel or anything else. And the incidents have not been clustered around a particular spike. It's just been month after month after month. And I think that's to do with the more general atmosphere in this country at the moment, what's been going on with our politics, uh, especially what's been going on with the Labour Party, uh, but also a broader sense of of division uh, and a a kind of increase in more general xenophobia, uh, which is, I think, connected to the whole Brexit debate. And that just means there's just this monthly drumbeat of anti-Semitic incidents and the attitudes that go with it that isn't really receding. Yeah, I mean, God, the Brexit debate has totally sort of, if it does feel like it sort of divided the country. And, um, you know, certainly there was a rise of hate crimes against, I think, the Polish community immediately after Brexit. So, yeah, it's mad. That's kind of the broader atmosphere, and there has been a rise in lots of different hate crimes. But I have to say, with the incidents that have been reported to CST over the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. the times where we've seen kind of mini surges in the number of incidents has been when anti-Semitism's been in the news and on the front pages and has been causing a lot of of very angry uh, and contested debate, and that has tended to be mm. linked to what's going on in the Labour Party more than what's going on with Brexit. Yeah. Sorry, one extra thing, actually. Um, I was shocked to discover that... Um, a lot of Jewish schools actually have to employ security because there is such a level of threat. Is that is that correct? It is. You know, in 2012, uh, a jihadist called Mohammed Mera in Toulouse in southern France uh, walked into a Jewish primary school and shot dead three children and uh, a teacher. God. A few days earlier, he'd shot 
uh, four French soldiers as well. Mm. Um, and that school did not have security on the gates. And this is something we see repeatedly over the years, terrorist attacks against uh, Jewish buildings, Jewish people. And there is a need for security across the Jewish community to try and deter or prevent or minimize these kind of attacks. Um, and in uh, Copenhagen in February 2015, a Jewish volunteer security guard, very similar to the volunteer security guards we have in this country, who works for CST, mm. was shot dead by uh, by a terrorist outside a, a, a party at, at the synagogue. Um, and this, but this terrorist threat to Jewish communities goes back a very long way. Um, mm. We think in 1994, a truck bomb, a suicide truck bomb, sent by Iran and Hezbollah. Uh, destroyed the Jewish community center in Buenos Aires in Argentina and killed 85 people. And that was terrorism affecting Jewish communities in Europe in, in the 70s uh, and, the, and the late 60s as well. So this is an ongoing, in, a long-term problem. And it means Jewish communities across Europe and around the world have built up their own uh, self-defense measures and security measures to protect Jewish communal life. And I understand that it looks shocking from the outside, but within Jewish communities, it's kind of expected and taken for granted that this mm. should happen and has to happen. Yeah, I just, I'm just sort of shocked and saddened that it has to happen, if you know what I mean. It's, um, yeah, because I mean, when I, you know, if I think about my sort of experience from a very white middle class English background, you know, I mean, there was no security at my school for anything. And, and to think that, you know, just because a school's a Jewish school, it has to have a, some sort of security. It's just sort of mind blowing. Right? I, don't, I just don't think many people take, uh, understand that that's the case today. I understand that. And of course, the thing about this kind of security against terrorism mm. is that hopefully it will never be needed. You know, hopefully mm. there'll never be an attack, but you mm. can't, you can't operate on the basis that hopefully there'll never be an attack so we don't need any security. You have to have it there, but you yeah. never know what it deters, what, what might happen if the security wasn't there. So it's getting that balance right of having the security, but not scaring people, not alarming people, and having it there to uh, to facilitate the kind of actually quite vibrant and growing and lively Jewish communal life that we have mm. in this country. Mm. Well, let's um, have a quick chat about your book. You've written this, written this great book called the, um, the Left's Jewish Problem. Can you just tell us a bit about this book and why you felt you had to write it? The book uh, covers the growth of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism on the left, initially the radical left, but more recently the Labour Party, in this country, really from the 1960s right up to the present day. It explains the, the, the historical and political roots of what we're seeing in the Labour Party at the moment. And it also goes through in some detail everything that's been happening not just over the last two or three years, but things that have been building over the previous decade or two uh, in, the, in, in that part of the British left. Mm. Um, and it explains, so it explains kind of how we got here and what's happening and, and what these problems are. Um, the, the short answer to why I felt it necessary to write the book is simply that I, uh, I did a PhD 
uh, on the historical part of the story, which I began in 2011. And at the time, I assumed it would just be a history PhD that would not really have that much relevance. And mm. like most PhDs, it would, might get read by, you know, a few dozen people and that would be it. <laughs> um, but I finished it. Uh, just a few months before Jeremy Corbyn became elected as Labour Party leader. And because he comes from exactly that part of the radical left that my thesis was looking at, it just made mm. perfect sense to uh, rewrite it into a modern political book, uh, hopefully more readable than a PhD thesis, and certainly much more uh, kind of relevant and attached to what's going on at the moment yeah i mean i always thought so i mean um because it's, it's on its, its second edition now isn't it that's right yeah so the the first edition came out uh in september 2016 uh but then I've, i updated it this year with a, with a new edition covering everything that's happened over the last two or three years in the Labour Party because so much has happened and so much has changed really over that time. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I mean, still things keep happening. It never seems to stop. In any way, it's very brave to sort of put it in a book because it does keep needing updating, doesn't it? It's one of the challenges, yes, is um, the gap between submitting the manuscript to your publisher and actually seeing it in print is a period of time where you just hope nothing happens and, of course, lots of things do. Um, but it, I, I think the the ideas that I've written in the book and the arguments and the explanations hold true, mm. even if there are more examples of the same kind of things that have happened since I wrote it. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, the historical roots to some of the things we'll discuss in a minute, um, you know, they're, they're timeless. Yeah, that's, that's right. And it, it, those historical roots are an important part of explaining how we got here. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, I mean... When I'm, I get personally get very frustrated in talking to supporters of Jeremy Corbyn about anti-Semitism. They kind of they either say that the charges are overblown. Some say that the, that any criticism of Israel is labelled as anti-Semitic. One person I spoke with even went as far as to question why we need the term anti-Semitism. She asked, should it just not be classed as racism? What are your thoughts on sort of comments like that? Because these are kind of discussions that are frequently going on online between people. I mean, this is one of the frustrating things when we try and talk about anti-Semitism, particularly anti-Semitism on the left. Mm. You know, if you if you talk about anti-Semitism on, on the right or the far right, mm. no one really argues. Everyone across the left who considers them, themselves to be anti-racist will agree and will support you and, 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 and there's no problem. Mm. The moment you try and point out people using anti-Semitic language or conspiracy theories or, or, or images from, who are from a left-wing background or who are operating in uh, kind of pro-Palestinian or anti-Israel campaigning and using anti-Semitic language there, you immediately get told, no, we're just criticizing Israel and you're trying to stop us doing that, or these charges are all smears, they're all invented, and so on. It's very frustrating. Uh, and uh, it's not true. This isn't about stopping people criticizing Israel. People can criticize Israeli policies all day long. They do so in Israel all day long. Mm. This mm. is about people claiming the Rothschilds run the world or saying the Holocaust didn't happen or claiming that there's a Zionist conspiracy that controls governments in Westminster and Washington. I mean, real old-fashioned traditional anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, uh, maybe with the word Zionist swapped in with the word Jew to make them a bit more politically mm. acceptable. 
but a world away from kind of criticizing Israel. And these things are real. Um, now, I think as things have gone on over the last couple of years, more and more people have found it impossible to, to ignore this stuff anymore. Uh, even to the extent that Jeremy Corbyn himself has said repeatedly the anti-Semitism does exist in the party, puts on side whether he's actually done the thing about it, which is a whole other argument. But even he has acknowledged this isn't made up, it's not a smear. John Landsman, who runs Momentum, acknowledges it's not made up, it's not a smear. Mm. So I think we need to get over that. I think people in the Labour Party are on the left who are uncomfortable with the idea that anti-Semitism exists in their movement need to um, just adopt maybe a more responsible, maybe a more mature attitude to it and recognise that these problems exist everywhere, that the left has always had its own particular problems of anti-Semitism um, mm. and that they need to address it and deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, a couple of questions. Is there, because again, when debating this online, every so often you'll get a, like on Facebook, somebody will send a, an article of a singular Jewish person who tends to be an anti-Zionist Jew who says, oh, this is just all overblown. And they use that then as an example of, oh, no, there's there's debate within the Jewish community about whether Jeremy Corbyn is, and his leadership is sort of leading to rise in anti-Semitism. So I suppose my question is, is there a general consensus within the Jewish community about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership? There is. I think the most recent poll I saw in, I think, the Jewish Chronicle found that 85% of British Jews think that Jeremy Corbyn is personally anti-Semitic. I mean, that's an absolutely astonishing figure. You can't get 85% of Jewish people to agree on anything, <laughs> um, uh, apart from this. And there is, you look across all the mainstream Jewish organisations in this country, um, my own one, CFT, the Board of Deputies of the British Jews, the Jewish Leadership Council, the, the rabbinical leaders of all the different religious streams uh, and religious mm -hmm. bodies, whether it's youth movement, student movement, and the rest, there is absolute consensus. And I speak frequently on this subject to Jewish audiences mm. around the country and in settings that are more left-wing, that are more right-wing. And again, there is absolute consensus, apart from a tiny fringe, and it really is a tiny fringe, mm. of uh, Jewish uh far left anti-Zionists who are um, much more aligned with kind of Jeremy Corbyn's politics on these issues, mm. who are tiny in number, but who kind of make a big noise, and especially within the Labour Party, make a big noise. And that can sometimes give the appearance that the community is divided over this. But yeah. really, in terms of numbers, the community is not divided. And has Corbyn actually taken any significant action to deal with the problem with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? I think the reason why the problem has got so bad is because the opportunities to take action have been missed. You know, there have been inquiries. Uh, there was the Chakabati inquiry, which was the best known one. Yeah. There was one before that by Baroness Royal, who looked at anti-Semitism in uh, Oxford University Labour Club. And those opportunities to uh, instigate real change were missed. And I think the reason they were missed is because, um, well, the Bar Baroness Royals one was, was simply shelved by Labour's NEC. Mm. 
and the Chakrabarti inquiry was more uh, a, an effort in in kind of sweeping it under the carpet. I mean, a lot of people called it a whitewash. I don't think it was wholly without merit, but essentially, mm. it, it it was never going to achieve any real change because it was not atten- not intended to achieve real change. It was intended to manage the problem away. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, he will condemn anti-Semitism. He he will commit himself to opposing anti-Semitism. But he always does it in generic terms, always. Mm. And it's always about him and his personal views that he opposes anti-Semitism. But he very, very rarely, if ever, intervenes in any individual cases. Mm. You know, where you have individual Labour MPs or councillors or members who have made anti-Semitic statements or done anti-Semitic things. And Jeremy Corbyn will just be silent. He'll just step back and not intervene. So there's a real lack of leadership in actually bringing about real change. And I think ultimately the reason for that is because he and the people around him don't see this as a problem of them and their politics. They see this as a problem of other people who've kind of fringe people who've wandered into the Labour Party almost by mistake because, you know, they have they shouldn't be there because they have these views and the Labour Party needs to get rid of them all. And it's a tiny number, and, and that's that. Whereas really, the anti-Semitism is being generated by some of the uh, radical political attitudes towards Israel and Zionism, but also towards Jews, mm. that um, come from Jeremy Corbyn's part of the left. And I don't think he and the people around him are willing or able to recognise that. Yeah, and it concerns me because there are a lot of young people who've invested in Jeremy Corbyn um, and in uh, Momentum, which was an organisation I think created to help him get elected as leader of the Labour Party. And I just get concerned that this is going to become a norm eventually, and it's really quite disturbing. That is definitely a danger lot. Most most Labour Party members, of course, are not anti-Semitic. Most supporters of Jeremy Corbyn are not anti-Semitic. Same with Momentum, right? And actually, a lot of the younger people who've joined Labour uh, under Corbyn's leadership for very idealistic reasons have been very upset by all this anti-Semitism. They don't understand why it's happening and why he hasn't just apologised and dealt with it and moved on. Um, but the problem is exactly, as you say, is that it does become normalised because, you know, something like 35 to 40% of the British public in opinion polls say that they think Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic. Right? Now, if you have a situation where over a third of the electorate think he's anti-Semitic, but he's still leader of the Labour Party, that makes anti-Semitism normal. It makes it a normal part of our mainstream politics. And within the Labour Party, and we're within these circles, whenever issues relating to Jews uh, or Israel get discussed, you get these anti-Semitic attitudes expressed, and the people expressing them don't get thrown out of the party. In fact, quite often their attitudes become the dominant attitudes. It normalizes it within those circles, even if most people are kind of a silent majority who don't hold those views. And that is the danger. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, there was that famous case with um, Ken Livingston. Um, and, um, yeah, I've actually lost track of where he's at with the Labour Party because um, there are calls for him to be expelled, and, I, and I've actually lost track of where he's at. Well, he, I mean, that's a classic case. He made his... Mm appalling comments claiming that Hitler supported Zionism uh, and so on, which he repeated several times. 
Um, and it, it was, you know, it was bogus history, but the basic intention on his part was just to bracket Israel and Zionism together with Hitler and Nazism as best he could. Um, he was found guilty by the Labour Party of bringing the party into disrepute, but they allowed him to stay as a member. So the message that then is that you can express those views, you can use the Holocaust deliberately to wind up and offend the Jewish community, which is what he did, and still remain a party member. And then in the end, because there was a whole other set, because there was such an, an outcry over that, that there was a second set of disciplinary charges heading his way, he was allowed to resign from the party voluntarily. So Labour never actually threw him out. Um, mm. And the message that gives is, is, well, it's not one of zero tolerance, is it? It's no. one of excusing and accepting, and, and there is space for this in our party. Well, it. And it, it is cronyism too, because Ken Livingston's very much part of the kind of the, I call it the Corbyn cliques, I can't think of a better term for it, but he's very much part of that kind of, that generation that Corbyn's from. He is, uh, and he's also one of the best known politicians in the country. I mean, uh, mm. so, so what he says and does and what happens to him really matters. And of course, what happened is he dredged up you know, obscure details from the history of the Holocaust and of the Nazi occupation of Europe and persecution of the Jews. Obscure details that he then twisted into an argument that Zionism, which was the movement that at that time was trying to rescue Jews from anti-Semitism and create a state of Israel where Jews could live free from anti-Semitism, mm. He, he, he created this whole argument that Zionism collaborated with Nazism, the implication being that, that, that the Zionist movement, that the people who founded Israel somehow shared the guilt for the Holocaust. Now, this has mm. a few implications, one of which, of course, is that if they share the guilt for the Holocaust, then there's less guilt on the Nazis. It's shared, right? So there's an element of yeah. kind of Holocaust denial or, or, or mm. a subtext of Holocaust denial in there. Not that he's denying the Holocaust happened, but that he's, he's, he's making an argument that, that means the Nazis weren't wholly and solely to blame for it. Um, mm. And the second thing that it does is it encourages all of his supporters and all of Jeremy Corbyn's supporters to take up this argument and to, and to adopt it as their own, to endorse it. And of course, these are people who've never thought about these details of, of Second World War history before. And they don't know anything about it. But because Jeremy, because, sorry, Ken Livingston articulates mm. these opinions, in order to defend Livingston, they have to defend his opinions. So all of a sudden, this idea that Zionism collaborated with Nazism becomes part of the modern Labour Party's discussions about anti-Semitism yeah. Jews and Israel. And it's, it's absurd and it's obscene. And it's the consequence yeah. of... Of, of what Livingston did. Yeah. And am I right in thinking that theory um, originates from some sort of uh, far left text or something? I don't know if you know the name of the books. I must be, I don't. I mean, there's various, there's various books um, which make this argument. I mean, not by proper historians, mm. you know, fringe mm. books, but really like a lot of this, a lot of the, the kind of left wing anti-Semitism that we see today, it originates from Soviet uh, propaganda that was produced yeah. uh, in the Soviet Union from the 1950s onwards as part of a whole anti-Semitic campaign, both internally and externally. Like what we're doing? 
Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Aren't you able to give us a sort of um, a dummy's guide to historical anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism is prejudice, hostility, bigotry towards Jews and Judaism and kind of Jewishness and Jewish identity. Mm. But really, it's it's a bit different from other types of racism because it's uh, as well as that kind of prejudice. You also have uh, a much grander type of anti-Semitism that attempts to explain the world through conspiracy theories about Jews. Uh, And essentially, it boils down to the idea that whenever you see Jews doing anything or saying anything, there must be an ulterior motive. And that whenever something bad happens in the world, there must be Jews behind it somewhere. And after the, the Holocaust, partly because of the kind of a taboo on anti-Semitism and partly because of the creation of Israel, you get the same thing said about Zionists that used to be said about Jews. So you get conspiracy theories that, that there's Jewish conspiracies to roll, run the world, they run the media, they run the banks, and so on and so on. Um, what it goes back to in history is... Um, kind of the origin of uh, sort of the anti-Semitism in, in Christian and post-Christian Europe with the idea that the Jews killed Jesus. Um, and that comes from the, the Gospel of Matthew, that the, you know, the blood of Jesus will be on, on the Jews and on their children, so it passes down through generations. Uh, and of course, this is uh, not just a religious or a theological point, but also it, it says things about the, how anti-Semitism views Jews, because if Jews, kill, if Jews kill Jesus, firstly, they must be so powerful to be able to kill the Son of God, and secondly, they must be uniquely evil and cruel to want to kill the Son of God. And then through kind of the d- development of Christian Europe and into the Middle Ages, you had successive uh, ways of viewing the world, firstly religious, theological, and then with the Enlightenment in the 18th century, kind of political, philosophical, they always view the Jews as the archetype of of evil or unreason or cruelty or irrationality. They were the model of how good Christians or good rational philosophers shouldn't uh, shouldn't be. That's that's they are the other. They were Europe's other. Um, and there were various different ways that this manifested. So during the uh, the, the plague in the in the 14th century, Jews were accused of poisoning wells across Europe because, you know, they, the plague was blamed on them. Uh, there was the, the, the myth of a blood libel, a, a ritual murder that Jews would kidnap Christian children and, and use them, them in kind of ritual sacrifice and use their blood for religious purposes. I mean, completely absurd, unimaginable ideas. You know, George Orwell wrote yeah. a famous essay about anti-Semitism in which he wrote, one of the marks of, of anti-Semitism is the ability to believe things that could not possibly be true. And so much of anti-Semitism is the invention of fantastical and ridiculous conspiracy theories and myths and allegations against Jews, which could not possibly be true, many of which developed in places where there were no Jews living. And there is a phenomenon of kind of anti-Semitism without Jews, because 
of course, anti-Semitism is not actually about real Jews and how they actually behave. It's about building this this mythical, abstract figure that all the bad things in the world can be blamed on. Um, and this, you know, at different times in history, these ideas have gripped whole societies. Uh, you know, England in uh, 1290 was the first country in Europe to wholly expel all its Jews. Um, and then you can fast forward all the way to the 1930s and the 1940s and Nazi Germany and the Holocaust and so on. But even after the Holocaust, you have um, situations where in um, Poland in 1968, where there were only 30,000 Jews living down from a pre-war population of 3 million, the communist government embarked on an anti-Semitic campaign under the guise of anti-Zionism where Jews were accused of being disloyal to to the country and disloyal to socialism and were kicked out of their jobs and kicked out of their, you know, many cases of apartments and many of them fled the country um, as part of a, of a kind of anti-Semitic campaign. This is 20 years after the Holocaust. Um, so when we look at anti-Semitism today and the anti-Semitism that we're seeing on the left today, um, it still feels quite fresh and quite real. Um, and it is uses language and ideas that have very, very deep cultural roots that even the people using these ideas and expressing this language may not be aware of these cultural roots. They may not be aware when they claim the Rothschilds control the world banking system, that this is a claim that derives directly from Nazi propaganda. Right? And yet you see this in Labour Party supporting Facebook groups. Now, the people posting yeah. this stuff might not know that they're quoting Nazi propaganda, that itself draws on older um, conspiracy memes and ideas about Jews. But that's what's going on. Yeah, I think a lot of conspiracy theorists are unaware of the kind of the far right origins of a lot of contemporary conspiracy theories. Um, I did an episode a few months ago of a guy called David Nywert where we looked into that, and it's just really interesting because I, I I work in the media, so I meet a lot of people who are kind of um, who probably identify as left and far left, and I've met quite a few conspiracy theorists too, from flat earthers to whatever. And and they and when you speak to them, they kind of they don't strike you as people who'd believe far right ideas, but then they and with some of the theories they believe in they kind of perpetuate them without realizing it and it's quite amazing that's right and the thing about conspiracy theories is that it's a way of thinking it's a way of viewing the world and of explaining things that happen in the world mm. so it's not like people can wholly buy into conspiracy theories in one area but then not consider them or touch on them in other areas generally Speaking, people who believe conspiracy theories about one thing will tend to be more, more likely to believe them about other things as well. And yes. the moment you scratch below the surface and you get into that conspiracy world, you hit anti-Semitism. It's absolutely mm. unavoidable. Whatever your entry point is, if you follow that conspiracy path to any kind of depth at all, you'll end up meeting the anti-Semitism. Yeah, well, there's one text in particular that always comes up, um, and it's the Protocols of Zion, which is this um, text that was uh, created by um, the Russian government in, I think, the 1800s to try and blame its Jewish population for all the problems in their society. I don't know if you've got any sort of thoughts or information on that particular book. 
I do. I have a small collection, actually, of copies of it. The, the, so the Protocols of the Elder Zion was, it's a hoax document mm. produced by the secret police of the Tsar of Russia uh, before, in sort of the early 20th century, before the Russian Revolution. And it claims to be the minutes of a secret meeting of the group of Jews who run the world. Yeah. Right. And, and it's absurd. Uh, you know, and each chapter is about how they control the media and they use the banks and they start wars and they start revolutions and they undermine the morals of society. Uh, there's a lot in there, actually, about that, about about the Jews are blamed for kind of eating away at the moral values and the moral fabric of, of authentic national societies. Um, and this book, as ridiculous as it was, became hugely hugely popular and influential it was serialized in the times before a couple of years later the times actually debunked it it um it was it's been published and in you know pretty much every country you can think of in different languages in different time periods uh you can still get copies of it today particularly in uh muslim majority countries and in arab countries it's still quite popular um I've got copies published in Britain in the 70s, in Pakistan in the 1980s, in Malaysia in the 1990s. And of course, the interesting thing about those two is that in Pakistan and Malaysia, there were no Jews living there. You know, this isn't about actual Jewish people in their countries. It's, it's like I say, it's about creating this fantasy enemy to explain yeah. the world. One person who really loved the protocols was Henry Ford who, you know, other than Ford mm. cars, he had his own newspaper in the 1920s and he would write a regular column quoting from the protocols and then giving his own view about how this applied to America. And that then got parceled up into a book called The International Jew. And again, you can buy that, you know, probably on, on online from far right or anti-Semitic sellers uh, and so on. Um, and this this book, uh, it, um, it was famously called by a historian called Norman Conn, called it a warrant for genocide because of the yeah. way Nazi Germany used the protocols in their propaganda to incite uh, anti-Semitism that ultimately led to the Holocaust. It's the core text of modern anti-Semitism. Yeah. Can you explain to us what Zionism is? Because obviously people misunderstand it all over the place. So it'd be good to know what is Zionism? Zionism is the uh, political movement that uh, created the State of Israel, essentially. It emerged in 19th century Europe at a time when there were lots of different national movements uh, emerging and growing. Uh, and essentially, uh, there were lots of different strands to Zionism, but the, the core idea is that uh, it was only through national self-determination and national liberation, if you like, that uh, Jewish people would control their own destinies and not be subject to the, the whims of anti-Semitic rulers or anti-Semitic societies uh, such as those in, in Europe, which is where it grew. Um, now, it drew on much older kind of non-political religious mm -hmm. Jewish yearning for a, a kind of a return to Zion would be the phrasing. Uh, which hark back to, you know, the idea that in biblical times there was Jewish sovereignty in what is now Israel and then exile and so on. And now various historical debates about the accuracy of all that history, but that's the kind of the, 
the founding myth mythology, if you like. Um, and Zionism, you know, as a political movement, ended up being successful. Israel was created in 1948. It's important to note that Zionism existed long before the Holocaust. I mean, we think of, you know, the creation of Israel as a response to the Holocaust. But the movement and growing Jewish support for it and the arguments for it, uh, and also growing political support for it, and the Labour Party backed Zionism from the time of the First World War, um, as did the British government with the Balfour Declaration. That all existed a long time before the Holocaust. Now, since Israel was created, obviously it doesn't need a movement to create it anymore. So Zionism, um, amongst Jews around the world, has come to mean a basic emotional attachment to and support for Israel. Now, for some Jewish people, that will be support for the government of Israel. For many, it's not. Mm. You get left-wing Zionists, right-wing Zionists. You get uh, people, Jewish people, who will argue all day long about uh, the occupation and where Israel's borders should be and the Palestinians and about civil rights within Israel, but who will all call themselves Zionists. Um, and that tends to be how Jewish people understand it. It's just the idea that the Jewish people are a people and uh, that they have a right to self-determination and that that is realized in the state of Israel and the state of Israel should exist as kind of the, the realization of that right. Now, what you tend to get in other circles, particularly amongst in extremist ideologies, is a very different definition and portrayal of Zionism. What you tend to get is a portrayal of Zionism as some kind of power network sometimes a global power network and you get these conspiracy theories coming back in. You get the idea that Zionism is a form of colonialism, that it's a racist ideology. Well, of course, Jewish people see it as an escape from racism, escape from anti-Semitism. Um, so you have this big gap in between how Zionism is understood by most Jews and how it is portrayed in Sort of certainly more radical political circle. So the British left was once very supportive of the formation of the State of Israel, yet that starts to change with the emergence of a new left in the 1950s and 60s. Can you just talk to us a bit about this original support for Israel and that sort of slow change in attitude with the, the rise of the new left? Sure. Um, look, the Labour Party uh, in Britain was, for most of the 20th century, the most pro-Israel, pro-Zionist party. Mm. Uh, it was also mm. the party that most British Jews supported throughout most of the 20th century. And this was based on the idea that uh, Zionism was a response to anti-Semitism, that actually for much of the period before Israel was created in 1948, um, Zionism was largely a left-wing movement. You know, the original Zionists who, who moved to Israel and, and built it up kind of in pre-state years, came from European socialist or social democratic traditions. There was a political affiliation. Also, of course, you know, the, the European left and the British left lived through the rise of fascism in the 1930s, lived through the Holocaust, um, and had that affiliation to their Jewish comrades on the left, mm. uh, and understood Israel as, as a necessary refuge for for Holocaust survivors. What you started to get in the 1960s, you had the arrival of, uh, or the growth of this uh, kind of radical new left, which was the first post-war left-wing generation that 
did not have those memories and that history, much more animated by the need to end European empires and decolonize and bring and um, support national liberation movements around you know, what was then called the third world and now we call the global mm-hmm. south. Um, and this grew at a time, especially after the Six-Day War in 1967, when Israel all of a sudden looked very strong and was aligned to America. And it was the Palestinians who were then weak and stateless and refugees and were more aligned with the Soviet bloc. So in that kind of Cold War orientation, Israel kind of missed out. Um, And that sort of 1960s new left, the kind of anti-Vietnam War, anti-apartheid student left, started to become more influential in the uh, really from the late 60s through the 70s and then into the Labour Party. It really made its presence felt in the early 1980s. And that's been a gradual process. Now, it's not been wholly linear. I mean, you know, in the, in the 1990s, certainly under New Labour, the Labour Party, again, was very supportive of Israel. That was the time when Israel had Labour governments who were pursuing peace with the Palestinians. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of Jewish voting support for the Labour Party in this country as well. But broadly speaking, that's been the kind of big picture changes really since since the after the Second World War until where we get to today. Yeah, am I right in thinking it's sort of the sort of Marxist and Trotskyist uh, Trotskyist parts of the Labour Party that seem to be the ones who are sort of driving that change in attitude towards Israel? They've been influential at different times. Um, yeah. And the times when the Labour Party has veered into these more anti-Zionist or anti-Semitic uh, positions or had those, I, those ideas have been heard more vocally within them, has tended to be when the party has moved more to the left. So the early 1980s is a case as well. Um, but it's not, this isn't really about tiny fringe groups hijacking the discourse. You know, the first kind of new left organization or political party in this country to really adopt anti-Zionism after 1967 were the young liberals, uh, which always surprises people because most people I speak to who were on the new left in the 60s, so they didn't even think of the young liberals as new left, but the young liberals certainly did. And they were involved in these kind of anti-colonial, anti-apartheid circles. And they picked up this anti-Zionism from conferences they went to overseas where they met Mm. the PLO and so on. And Mm. they gave a liberal language and a liberal discourse about human rights and and nationalism, uh, national liberation to pro-Palestinian activism. Uh, and to anti-Zionism in this country. And it was a very different language and a different discourse from that pursued by Trotskyist and Marxist groups who really took a lot longer to have an impact on the left and in, in broader society as well. Yeah. And it's becoming increasingly popular segments of the left to equate Israel and Zionism with apartheid policies. Can you talk to us about this and the origins of this comparison? Well, the origins of this comparison, uh, again, go back to uh, Soviet propaganda uh, and, and PLO propaganda, actually, from the early 1960s. Yeah. You know, normally, if you read today arguments that, that Israel practices a form of apartheid, it tends to focus on the situation in the West Bank 
and the different uh, lives and different legal systems and, and different um, kind of levels of, of, of poverty and, and resources and so on amongst uh, the uh, Israeli settlers and Palestinians on the West Bank. Um, but actually, the idea that Israel is practicing a form of apartheid or that it is, comparis- it is comparable to to South Africa, but also to Rhodesia as well as in the 1960s as some kind of colonial settler state. That goes back before Israel even uh, had occupation of the West Bank. That goes back to a a critique or an attack on Israel itself. Um, And again, it is part of that battery of Soviet anti-Zionist charges that made up a kind of propaganda war, if you like, against Zionism, some of which veered very much into anti-Semitism from the 1960s, even the 1950s onwards. And you mentioned in the 60s and 70s that um, members of the left who were campaigning for Palestinian rights, they had to make a decision. Were they campaigning for a Palestinian state alongside Israel or were they campaigning for a new state in Israel's place? Can you just talk to us a little bit about that? Well, this comes back to fundamentally different understandings of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm. Is it a conflict between two different national movements, two different national groups, both of whom, uh, to some degree or other, have legitimate claims on the land that they share, uh, and both of whom need to be satisfied to varying degrees in order to find a, a, an end to the conflict, right? And that way of thinking leads towards supporting a two-state solution and saying Israel is there and it should exist um, and Palestine needs to exist alongside it and then, then you can move on. There's another alternative view, which is the more radical view, which is that this is not about two national movements at all. This is about colonizers who arrived from Europe en masse to displace the native people who are the Palestinians who were colonized. And therefore, it's very different. It's very black and white. You have the oppressors and the oppressed. And uh, colonialism has no rights. Mm. Colonialism is simply a movement of racist dispossession, uh, and it cannot endure. And therefore, the solution to the conflict is to get rid of Israel, and replace it with a single state. Uh, and at different times in history, different people have argued about whether these were, the Jews who were there could stay or not. I think nowadays most people who argue for one state would say they stay. Um, but this is fundamentally this this argument, and it comes down to almost terminology. Mm. Are these are our groups, our campaigners, pro-Palestinian, or are they anti-Zionist? Um, being pro-Palestinian doesn't preclude uh, accepting that Israel exists. You know, you can be pro-Palestinian and support two states. Uh, a lot of people who support two states would describe themselves as pro-Palestine and pro-Israel and pro-peace. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you're anti-Zionist, that means Israel has to go. Yeah. And that's the fundamental difference. Uh, and I think ultimately, um, the fact that some of the more radical left-wing groups in this movement over decades have concentrated more on opposing Israel and seeking Israel's removal or destruction 
than on supporting the Palestinians and supporting the creation of Palestine has been hugely detrimental to the nature of this movement in this country and has opened up the space for anti-Semitism to find a home in this movement. Yeah. And there's an interesting point you bring up actually in the book that, um, you know, you state that it's highly theorised that anti-Zionism is all about the Jews and not really about the Palestinians at all. Do you want to just talk to us a little bit about that? As I say, the whole term anti-Zionism suggests the focus is on Zionism. And I've spoken to mm. uh, people who've been involved in these campaigns over the years. Richard Burden, who's a member of parliament and he's chair of the all-party parliamentary group on Palestine, but, you know, got a long track record of campaigning for Palestine. And he said after his experiences as a student involved with a, a mm. group that was called the British Anti-Zionist Organization, he decided they should, he wanted them to change their name, get rid of the phrase anti-Zionism, because yeah. it's completely the wrong focus. Right? And again, after, after um, Ken Livingstone's comments about Hitler and Zionism, John Landsman, head of momentum, mm. said, you know, we should just stop talking about Zionism. That shouldn't be the focus. And I think it does come down to this, this idea of, of what you're trying to do. Now, one of, the, one of the features, one of the things that, that explains how we got here, I think, and one of the peculiarities is that anti-Zionist groups in this country have been very uh, much influenced by Jewish and Israeli anti-Zionists, um, mm. which may sound like a contradiction in terms, but absolutely it, it's not at all. Um, and of course, when you're talking about um, Jewish or Israeli anti-Zionists, for them quite often, the focus is that internal Jewish political argument over Zionism. Uh, you know, even though uh, the movement to create Israel eventually had majority Jewish support, and Israel now has by far you know majority Jewish support around the world, uh, there's always there have always been Jewish people who felt that Zionism and the creation of a nation state was not the right way to go for the Jewish people. And in Zionism's early days, it was very much uh, Zionism was a minority view, and now it's the anti-Zionism as a minority view. But the point is, it's an internal Jewish argument about, about Jewish politics. Um, and yet, what happens is, the, the, the Jewish anti-Zionist activists and groups we're talking about, in order to pursue this argument, because basically they have such little support within Jewish communities, they kind of bring in support from outside, from the broader left into this argument and it completely changes the focus so the focus ends up being about arguing over zionism not arguing not trying to build up uh palestine um and it's a much more ideological position rather than a practical yeah. position um and it's it's been i think very damaging yeah i agree Dave, we're we're running out of time. So, um, is there anything you'd like to add that's important to you that we may have missed today? I think, in terms of what's happening in the Labour Party at the moment, there's really two important things to um, to focus on. One of them is that so much of the anti-Semitism is not just about where the line should be over criticism of Israel. It's much older types of anti-Semitism getting recycled in new language. Um, mm. And the other is that. When Jewish people say, when they, Jewish people complain about anti-Semitism, they mean it genuinely. Even if you disagree with them, even if people disagree with them about whether something is anti-Semitic or isn't, it doesn't mean that they're 
lying or it's a smear or all the rest of it. It might just mean there's a discussion to be had about what is and is not anti-Semitic and there's a, a need for greater understanding on both sides mm. if there's a difference of opinion. But my point is it needs to be done in good faith. Yeah. Um, and if that good faith and that respect is there, then that dialogue can be had. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming on today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, Obviously, they can buy my book, and that's the only plug I will I will make. So I'll, I'll yeah, plug away, plug away. <laughs> it's called The Last Jewish Problem, Jeremy Corbyn, Israel and Antisemitism. Uh, uh, or you can look at the, uh, for my work for CST, you can look at the CST website, which has lots of details about everything we do to protect the Jewish community here, and also to work with other communities to help them do the same excellent i'll put a, a link um so listeners who are listening now if you click on the image of the podcast there should be a link to go and buy david's book from amazon fantastic thank you dave thank you so much i really enjoyed that today pleasure thanks for having me on like what we're doing support the show by becoming a dry cleaner cast patreon subscriber today Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.